Well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we continue, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke. And in this powerful book and powerful study, we see Jesus as the Savior and the Messiah. And, of course, as we're continuing, Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's come to complete his ministry. He's come to do the will of the Father, and that is to die and rise again. That is to pay for sin and conquer death, and he is to be the Savior and the King. And as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, we're seeing the opposition from the religious leaders continues to grow. Remember that as a whole, and we talked about this several weeks ago, but as a whole, the nation of Israel has rejected Christ as Messiah and as Savior. In fact, led by the religious leaders, they do not believe that he indeed is their Messiah. In fact, they despise him. This morning, we're going to see a very famous passage. We often call it the prodigal son, but there's so much in Luke in this, but there are really three stories. There are three stories. There's one parable with three stories. We call it the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Each one of these stories shows us that God loves people. God loves mankind. He wants us to have a relationship and fellowship with him. God wants us to be with him. So there's a lot in there. And may we see the love of God as we study God's word this morning. Well, have you ever lost something? I mean, sometimes we, it may be valuable, it may not be valuable. Sometimes you look for something, you can't find it, you look all over the place. And finally you say, well, it's gone, it's gone, I just can't find it. And then, by the grace of God, it turns up. And you go, wow, I found it. And you get all excited. Well, all of us have had that happen in our lives, that we've lost something, we found it. Well, this morning, as we look at Luke 15, we're going to see three stories by Jesus to teach this truth. It has to do with lost and found. It's going to talk about how God loves people and he wants us to be with him. And in each of these stories, something is lost and then found. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and finally the famous story of the lost son. It's going to take us several weeks to go through this passage. Chapter 15 is one big story. And so... We'll look at part of it today and, and finish it off next time, but uh, it all flows together in one event. The goal is that we'd be encouraged from this passage. Now, as we start, let's remember where we are. Jesus has finished his ministry in the northern part of Israel. That's, that's Galilee. He's left and he's on his way to Jerusalem to do the will of the Father. He has come to be the sacrifice and the substitute for the sins of the world. Philippians 2 says he left the glories of heaven, then humbled himself to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So that's what he's coming to do. He is almost to Jerusalem. We're going to see the whole rest of the book. In fact, just in a couple of chapters, he'll get to Jerusalem. And then all the way through the book of chapter 24, he'll be in Jerusalem, in which the emphasis will be him going to the cross, his death, and his resurrection. For the last several weeks, we have seen some great teaching by Jesus on two powerful truths that all of us must understand. We must understand it. The two things that he talked about were salvation and discipleship. Now, salvation is a gift. We saw how he talked that salvation was a gift, cost us absolutely nothing. He used the picture of being invited to the banquet. You get invited to the banquet, you come to the banquet, and you're in the kingdom forever, and that's all is a gift, and it's all grace. That's salvation. Last week, he taught the whole issue of discipleship and the cost that is involved. Take up your cross, die to self, and follow Jesus. So we see there's a contrast between being a believer and being a disciple. Being a believer costs us absolutely nothing. It's a gift. Being a disciple costs us our lives, and we follow Jesus. 
Now, it's important that you make that distinction. If you do not make that distinction, if you get that confused, you're going to have a confused message, you're going to believe in works for salvation, and you'll have no assurance of salvation. That's why it's so vital. There are people today who teach that if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. The Bible doesn't show that. The Bible shows that being a, being a believer and being a Christian is a gift given by God by faith, that being a disciple costs us. It costs us our lives as we live for Jesus Christ and follow him. Well, as we continue this morning, entire chapter 15 goes together. Jesus teaches a parable that has three stories connected with it. Let me show you what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start this morning. I'm going to give you the outline of the chapter. Then we're going to get some background. Then we're going to look at two ways of understanding the parable and these stories. And then I'll give you a little bit of details on the third story, which is the lost son, which is the one that everybody thinks about. Let me give you the outline of the chapter. Now, it's very simple. The outline of the chapter starts with the grumbling of the religious leaders. That's verses 1 and 2. The the rest of the chapter is the parable, which is three stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. That's how it fits together. Now, let me just give you this. The last part, the lost son, is sort of the important part. Or, or, uh, if you want to just see, this is the, the part that we're going to really emphasize, not only a little bit this week, but all next week. He, we see the lost son. He leaves. He wants his inheritance. He goes to a place. There's a famine. He decides to come home. And as he comes home, we see the next part. We see the father's response. There's compassion and joy. But we see the older brother's response. Response. There's anger where he talks about his service. And then the last part of the whole thing is where the father teaches and there's blessing and joy and there's a lot of great things in there. So there's a lot in this. Now, let me do this. Let me give you background. Why, why, are we, why What's the background on this passage? What's going on? Well, here's what happened. The religious leaders were angry because Jesus is spending time with sinners. Some tax collectors and what they call sinners had come to be with Jesus. And they looked over and saw him hanging around, you might say, with these sinners. And so uh, they are mad and they're saying something about it. But Jesus wants to show that God loves sinners. And he wants us to be with him. And he uses these three stories to show the joy when something that is lost comes back and has been found. That's going to be the thing. And we'll show you how it fits. Now, there are two ways that you can understand the parable and the story. It's not really three parables. It's one parable with three stories, and they all go together. There's two ways to look at them. A lot of people have said these three stories about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, they're salvation stories. They're salvation passages. It's a picture of being lost and being saved. There's the sheep that goes off and gets lost, and then he gets it back, and it's now saved. There's a coin that's lost, and they get that back, and it's saved. And then there's the son that was lost and saved. And so some people look at the passage and say, this is dealing with salvation. That's the picture. There's a second way to look at it, and it's really restoration. It's a restoration passage with something is gone, it's called out of fellowship, and then being restored. It was the man's sheep, and then he got it back. It was the woman's coin, and then she got it back. And it's the father's son, it's already his son, goes off, gets into trouble, and comes back. So the two ways to look at the passage are either a salvation passage, something was lost and is now found, or a restoration passage. Now, let me tell you this. I think the best way, when, when you look at this, the, the, especially the third one, when you talk about the lost son, probably the best way to look at that one is restoration and not salvation. Now, let me tell you that the idea of restoration and salvation may be, it may be a dual meaning in this passage because he deals with it. I want you to look at chapter 15. Look at verse 2. Look what the religious leaders say. Luke 15, verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, that could be the salvation part, and eats with them, that could be the restoration of the fellowship part.
heart. So it could be either way. Some people throughout history, they've looked at Luke 15, the three stories, and they all say they're a picture of being saved. Other people have looked at Luke 15 and said it's probably a picture of restoration. I think it could be both, but definitely the third story about the son is most likely restoration. And we'll see it as we go through because he is the son, he is in the family already, and he breaks fellowship. And we'll see how that ties together. Let me give you some details on this, on the third story, sometimes we call it the prodigal son. It could also be called the loving father. It can also be called the angry brother. Let me explain this to you. We've often, everybody looks at it. In fact, my Bible, when it gets to that story, it says the prodigal son. And it is a story about a guy, about a son who leaves home. Basically, he seems to be angry at his father and his brother. He says, I want my stuff and I want to leave. And he leaves and he gets himself in trouble and he comes back home. That's what a lot of people look at it. But you realize that the emphasis in this passage is the loving father. Because how does the loving father deal with the son who leaves? And how does the loving father deal with his older son who doesn't leave? We'll see that. And then the third way that sometimes it could be looked at is the angry brother. Because the older brother who didn't leave is mad when the younger brother comes back. And you could raise this question. If someone sins and they come back and they get into fellowship with God... How do believers who didn't sin, how do we treat those people? Do we treat them like they're second-class Christians? How does it work? We'll see it as we look at the passage. So there's a lot in this, and we're going to see some great things. Well, let's begin. We're going to start first with these religious leaders, how they're reacting to Jesus, spending time with people they consider sinners. Look at chapter 15. Look at verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Now, what was going on? You remember Jesus has been going and he's been teaching and, and he taught all about salvation. Then he taught about discipleship and there are crowds following him everywhere. And it says, it gets specific, Luke actually begins to tell us that some tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. They want to be close to Jesus. Now, who are these people? Who are the tax collectors? Now, we know that this, tax collectors were people, most of them Jewish people, who decided to work for the Roman government. They would collect taxes from Jewish people and give it to the Roman government. So the Romans said this, you collect so many taxes. Whatever you collect above that, you get to keep yourself. So they knew that they would have to give some to the Roman government, but whatever they collected above that, they got to keep. So most of the time when they went to people, they would say, you owe this many taxes. And the people would give it to them, and then they'd give some to the Romans, and they'd keep the rest for themselves. They were rich. A lot of them might have made a lot of money off people. So most Jews didn't like the Jewish people who were the tax collectors. They didn't like them at all. Because they said, you're just ripping us off. You're taking money. You're giving it to the Romans, but then you're keeping it for yourself. So most tax collectors were considered sinners. They didn't like them. Notice it says, but all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Now, the sinners were just people that sometimes were the lower class people, sometimes the people that got themselves in trouble. Now, most religious leaders considered everybody but religious leaders sinners. They would look at the common people and they would say, these common people, they're terrible. They're sinners. They're not like us. You remember the story where the guy went down to the temple and he was a, uh, he saw a tax collector over there and he was a Pharisee and he said, Oh Lord, thank you. I'm not like that guy. Thank you that I do what I'm supposed to do. That's how they looked at it. So there were people, they would say, tax collectors and sinners. They're the people who mess up all the time. Now the truth is, the religious leaders were sinners. In fact, the truth is that all people are sinners. We've all sinned and come short of God's glory. We don't measure up. 
God desires that all people, us sinners, be with him. John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's us that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God wants us with him. That's the key. And so uh, what is the response? Here's Here's all these sinners coming to hang around Jesus. And what do these religious leaders who think they're great, who think that they're not sinners, what do they say? Now listen, I want you to understand this. They do not like Jesus. They hate him. You know why they hate Jesus? Because he's always right. He's always right. They come up to trick him. They come up and ask a question. And he looks right at them and asks something back. And then they look like idiots. And they turn around and say, who told me to go up here and say that? I mean, this looks so bad. And, And he makes them look bad. So they don't like him. In fact, they want to discredit him. They're afraid that more and more people are going to follow Jesus. And they're going to lose their positions. So if they could kill him, they would. And their plan is to kill him. Well, watch what happens. Verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, as you know, the Pharisees were a group, a sect that, uh, that held to the law. And here's what they thought. They thought, here's what you do. How do you get to God? Is you keep all the laws. Now, not only the laws in the Torah, which were the first five books of the Bible, but they had all kind of laws that went with the laws. They had all kind of rules. And so they said, as long as you're trying to keep these rules, you'll be okay with God. So it was just rule after rule after rule after rule. They were very legalistic. They didn't even keep the rules, but nobody else did either. But they thought that's how you get to God. And so they're Pharisees. They're very legalistic. The scribes were sort of scholars. They sometimes call lawyers. They copied the Scripture, and they knew the Bible. If you had a Bible question, you might go to a scribe and say, what does this mean? And since they copied the Scripture and since they studied the Scripture, they might be able to tell you. Now, they're religious leaders. They don't like Jesus. They see all these sinners hanging around with Jesus and it says this, both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. He receives them and he's even having fellowship with them. And the way it's written in the Greek, it's ongoing. It says, and he's, he's receiving them, he's keeping on receiving them and he's keeping on eating with them. Now here's their idea. If Jesus was really somebody special, if he really was the Messiah, he would know better than to hang around and have fellowship with these sinners. He'd be hanging around good people. He wouldn't be hanging around bad people. They're missing the point. Here's the point. God loves sinners. He wants us to be with him. See, he wants us to be with him. Whether the whole idea of salvation or fellowship, he wants us to be with him. And so here these religious leaders going, who does he think he is? If he really was something special, he wouldn't be hanging around with those sinners. And what Jesus wants to teach them is that God loves sinners. God loves people. God wants people with him. God loves all people, and since all people are sinners, he wants all people who are sinners to be with him. Now, remember I said this a while ago. Religious leaders didn't see themselves as sinners. You could say, those are sinners, but I'm not. That's what they would think. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 3. So he told them this parable saying. Now notice parable is singular. 
There are three stories. This is one parable with three parts to it, three stories. They all have the same idea. Something was lost and then is found, and there's great joy. If we look at these, we're going to see them in both ways, either the idea, both idea of salvation and restoration. We could look at this lost sheep and lost coin and lost son and say, this is a picture of salvation. They were gone. They were dead. Now they're alive. Salvation. We could look at them as restoration. This was the man's sheep. This was the woman's coin. This was the father's son. They're off out of fellowship and they were restored. So either way you want to look at it. Now, bottom line, I think the third story matches much better on reconciliation, okay? Let's start with the first story. It's the lost sheep. Look what happens. So he told him this parable saying, and he starts with a question, and here's the question. What man among you, if he had a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? So he raises this question. He said, what man, what, what man among you, if he had a hundred sheep, and all of a sudden he realizes one of them's lost, he leaves the 99 over here, and he goes and searches until he finds the lost sheep? Bottom line question is, what man wouldn't do that? Everybody said, well, everybody would do that. If you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, surely you'd try to go find the one that was lost. Now, I want you to understand, in that day and time, uh, about 80 to 100 sheep was about what the average person might have. 300 sheep would be big. So when he said a guy had 100 sheep and lost one, most people would go, yeah, I got about 100. I got, about, I could lose. Yeah, I've lost some before. So he's telling a story that everybody identified with. And he said, what man, if he had 100 and lost one of them, he would leave the 99 and go find it. They'd all say, yeah, that's what we do. He wants them to realize that God loves us. And when we're lost, he wants to find us. He wants us to be with him, whether it's for salvation or for fellowship. Either way you want to look at it. So watch what happens. So the man goes to find it. Look at verse 5. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now he's going to show the response. He goes and finds a sheep, then he picks the sheep up and puts it on his shoulders and is bringing it back to the rest. This shows protection and it shows love. He didn't go there and say, I'm going to beat the fire out of this sheep for walking. Don't you ever run off again, I'll tell you. You ever done that with your dog? Get over here. You're not going to run out of this yard again. No, that's not what he did. He found the sheep and he goes, my sheep, my sheep. Oh, I love my sheep. And put my sheep on my shoulder and I'm going to take my sheep back. Because see, when you sin and you want to come back to God, he doesn't look at you and go, what do you think you're doing? I'm telling you, if you ever run out of this yard one more time. Is that how he treats you when you sin and you come back? That's not how he treats you. Shepherd goes and he finds his sheep and he is rejoicing. There is great joy. And look what he does. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now he comes back and he calls together his friends and neighbors. Now I want you to see this. You can't tell it in English, you can tell it in the Greek. When it says he calls his friends and neighbors, these are both, these both have the masculine form for friend and the masculine form for neighbors. He calls his guy friends. And he says, hey, men, guys, I found my sheep. I looked all over my sheep, I found it. Rejoice with me. He calls his guy friends together and says, I found my sheep which was lost. He wants his sheep with him. Now watch the point, verse 7. I tell you that 
In the same way, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. Now remember, the word repent means a change of mind. He could be saying there's going to be joy in heaven over a sinner who changes his mind, believes in Jesus, than over the 99 who are already saved. That could be one way of looking at it. Or it could be there's going to be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who changes his mind, who is out of fellowship, and now comes back than the 99 who didn't need to come back, they were okay. This is his point. There is great joy because God wants us with him. Religious leaders say, what are you doing hanging around those sinners? And Jesus said, God wants sinners with him. He wants us with him. That's the first story. Here's the second story. It's called the lost coin. Watch. And he asked the question again. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? The answer would be, if a woman lost her coin, she'd try to find it. Now, let me tell you, it's not like she had ten coins and dropped one. And she said, ah, it's no big deal. I got ten coins, dropped one, I'll get some more coins. No. These coins, most likely, when a woman got married in that day, they had a veil that came across the front. And they had ten coins usually across the front. This is her wedding veil. This is something that means a lot to her. One of the coins fell off of the veil. She looked up one day and she said, I'm missing one of my coins. And so what is she going to do? What woman who found that her wedding part of her wedding stuff had lost, she's going to find it because it means so much to her. If you look down and you're married and you say, oh my gosh, my, a part of my wedding band is messed up, lost, and you're going to find it. This is what happened. And it says that she did, it says, when she not light the lamp, sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it. Now see, in that day and time, the average person lived in these little places and they didn't have windows in their houses. So even during the day, if she lost something, she'd have to light the lamp and sweep the whole house so she could find the coin. And watch what happens. When she has found it, verse 9, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Now, in the Greek, get ready for this. When it says she called her friends and neighbors, friends is in the feminine form, and neighbors is in the feminine form. She calls her girlfriends. She's not calling guys and saying, Come over here, I found my coin. She's calling her girlfriends. And when the guy lost his sheep, he's not calling women to come say, I found my sheep. He's calling the guys. So both of them are calling their friends to say, something was lost. Now is found. I have great joy. Notice verse 10. Look what it says. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, either a sinner who repents, trusts in Jesus Christ and is saved and there's great joy, or over a sinner who is a believer already, gets out of fellowship, changes his mind, basically confesses his sins, and gets back in fellowship. Either way, whether it's salvation or restoration, there is great joy. Why? Because God wants us to be with him. This is why Jesus is hanging around the sinners, so to speak. He wants them to know that. That takes us to the last story, which is the lost son. Now, l- let me tell you, this could I mentioned this a while ago. This could be called several things. It could be called the two sons, the loving father, the prodigal son, the angry son. 
See, it could be called two sons because he starts the parable by saying a man had two sons. And if you look at the story carefully, you're seeing two sons. One who leaves the father, breaks fellowship, basically it goes off, gets in trouble, and finally comes back. You see the older son who breaks fellowship with the father because he's mad he won't even come into the house. We're going to see it. So the story could be the two sons. It could be the loving father because that is the key. How does the father treat the son who ran away? How does the father treat the older son who won't come into the house? How does the father treat him? Then sometimes it's called the prodigal son because it's dealing with the son who ran away. Sometimes it's just called the angry son because the emphasis at the end is this angry son who's mad because his brother came back. And we'll see how all this fits together. Wow, it's powerful. If it's a picture of salvation, the lost has come back, found joy being saved. It's a picture of restoration, son leaves, come back home, and there's great joy and there's restoration. I think the best way to look at this passage is restoration. We'll just get started in it. We'll finish it next week. Look at verse 11. And he said, here's his third story of the parable. A man had two sons. Well, what happened? The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, I want you to understand, the best we can tell, there's two. There's the older son and the younger son. He he says to his father, I want the share, my share of the estate that comes to me. I want that. Now, I want you to understand that when when a man died, when a daddy died, whatever sons they had in the family, the oldest son got the double portion of anybody else. If there were four or five sons, they were divided. If there were five sons, they were divided into six parts. The oldest son got two. Everybody else got one. In this case, there's two sons. So the father is going to divide it into three parts. The oldest son gets two-thirds, and the youngest son gets one-third. That's how it worked. Most of the time, that happened when the father died. But notice, the youngest son comes up to the dad now and says, Give me my stuff. Give me my third. I want my third uh, that falls to me. Now, I want you to understand that that's a little bit unusual, and it's really an insult to the father. Because what he's really saying is, I wish you were dead because I want my stuff. That's what he's saying. Now, how does the father respond? Does he say, what are you talking to me? Don't talk to me that way. Look what it says. So he divided his wealth between them. That's why this is often called the loving father. We're going to see a very loving father on how he treats all this. What does he do? He divides the wealth, and and, um, you can see a picture of the loving father. And that's really a picture of our heavenly father who loves us all the time. Look what happened, verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Not many days later. Now, I want you to understand, this was his plan. His plan wasn't just say, hey, Father, you know, I want to stay here and everything. I just would like my stuff now, which would be very unusual. And the Father gives it to him. But his plan is not many days. He says, I'm leaving. You know what you can tell? You can tell that there's obviously some kind of problem here. The youngest son doesn't want to stay there. He probably doesn't like his older brother. He doesn't like his father. He doesn't like what's going on. And so he's going to break fellowship. This is how I look at the passage. Here is the son of the father who's decided he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be in fellowship with the father and the brother. He wants to go do his own thing. And sometimes we as believers, we don't want to be in fellowship with our Heavenly Father. We, don't, we want to do our own thing. We say, you know, just give me my stuff and I'll go do what I want to do. Sometimes we think that way. And so it said that not many days later, he gathered everything together and he went on a distant journey. He went on a journey to a distant country. And look what he did. 
And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now the word squandered means to scatter. It means to lose. It means to use up. He got there and all this that his father had given. Now you think about his father had gone his whole life. And now this is what the father was going to leave to the son. He gives it to him and he's already used it up. Squandered it. And notice what it says, loose living. What does that mean? The Greek word has an idea of unwise or sensual. We don't know what he did. His older brother thinks he was with prostitutes because later at the very end of the passage, he's really upset. He says, so you brought this son back and he's with prostitutes and spent all the money and everything. So we don't know what he did because the passage doesn't say, but it says loose living, which means sensual desires, means unwise. It could be a picture of a son breaking fellowship with the father, going off, sinning, and getting himself in trouble. And sometimes we do that. We sometimes break fellowship with our Heavenly Father. We as believers and we say, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, what happened? Now, when he had spent, verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, in that country. And he began to be impoverished. Now, after he wasted everything and he didn't have anything left, he'd spent everything. The word means had been wasteful. A famine came and he's impoverished. He has nothing. By the way, who cares about this guy? He's away from his family, his loving father. Who cares about him? Guess what? Nobody cares about him. When we break fellowship and have sin in our lives and we go into this fallen world, guess what? This fallen world doesn't care anything about you. Not one thing. This world looks good sometimes. We think, oh, I want all the things this world has to offer. But let me tell you this. It cares nothing about us. We are not of this world. We may live in it, but we're not of it. And so he's in a mess. And watch what happens. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, it can't get any worse than this. He hired himself out. He said, let me go work for some guy. Let me be like a slave to this guy. Let me work for this guy. And so he says, okay. He said, I want you to go feed my pigs. Now, for the Jewish person, that was the worst thing you could do because pigs were unclean animals. It was the lowest job you could have. The religious leaders listening to Jesus tell the story, they would go, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, we don't even think about pigs. What are you telling that story like that for? He says he had to go feed the pigs. Somebody else's pigs. For the Jew, we'd say, boy, he's about as low as you can get. Yeah, that's about as low as you can get. And then it says, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving him anything. He's starving. He said, I'll even eat what the pigs are getting, but nobody will give me anything. Here is the son, broken fellowship, sinning, lost in a place where nobody cares. And that's as a believer and you're in a fallen world and don't care anything about you. And what's going to happen? There are two things here. One is we're going to see that he comes back. And the second thing is we're going to see how the father responds. Now, if this is a picture of restoration, it's like sometimes we get in our lives, we sin, we get off the deep end, we mess up, we've, we've, we're miserable, we realize what we've done, and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back with God. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to get back with my Heavenly Father. I'm going back. How does He respond to us? Does the Heavenly Father say, what do you think you're doing? You think you're going to come walking right back into here? You think you're going to come back and have the same privileges you had before you walked right out the door? Do you think that you deserve any of this? Is that how our Heavenly Father treats us? No, He does not. He's got His arms open just like this. Just like that song said. I want you to read something. Look at verse 17. 
when he had come to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? He came to his senses, and sometimes in our lives, we we get sin in our lives, and then finally we wake up, and we come to our senses. But I want you to see, how does his father treat him? Because this is a picture of how our heavenly father treats us. Look at verse 20. So he got up, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know why his father saw him? Because his father was waiting for him. His father probably went out every day and said, I hope he's coming home today. I hope he's coming home today. And when you got sin in your life, you know what your heavenly father says? I hope you're coming home today. I love you. I want you back with me. And look what happened. His father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Does God go, hey, 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 you going to come back here? Well, things are going to be different from now on. Is that how God treats us? Or does he say, I love you. Get over here. Get over here. Don't you ever leave me again. Don't you know I love you more than you could imagine? If you have sin in your life, greatest thing you can do is confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. You can get right back in the fellowship. Next time we'll see what happens. We're going to see what happens with that older brother as well. As we think about these stories, it could be if it's a picture of salvation, we see we're sinners, the lost come to God for salvation is great joy. But if it's restoration, we're sinners, there's broken fellowship, we come to God for restoration, there's joy. Either way, God wants us with him. That's the key. That's why he says to these Pharisees and these, these scribes, what are you hanging around those sinners for? Because God wants sinners with him. That's the story. What have we seen? Sinners are coming to Jesus and the religious leaders are mad because he receives them and he eats with them. And Jesus gives a parable that has three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, all showing the love that God has for the lost. And there's great joy when they're found. Let me give you some applications. First one is this. Understand God's love for all people. Bottom line, God loves us with an everlasting love. A, realize we're all sinners. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We could never measure up. But God loves us with an everlasting love. It says God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't say, get your act together and then I might do something for you. He loves us even though we are sinners. B, realize this, that God desires both a relationship and fellowship with people. The relationship is eternal life. He wants us to be with Him forever. He wants us to believe in Jesus. That's why He sent His Son, Christ, to die for us and pay for sin and give us eternal life. He wants us to have a relationship with Him forever, but He also wants us to have fellowship with Him. I think this passage, especially with the Son, is a fellowship passage. He wants us to be restored to Him when we sin. There is great joy when a person is saved. There is great joy when a person is restored. Jesus is the key for all of this. He is the way, the truth, and the life for salvation. He is the way, but for fellowship, He's also the way because he's the intercessor and the advocate. First John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, I don't want you to sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so Jesus not only is the way for salvation, Jesus is the way that as a believer that we get back into fellowship. God desires this relationship and fellowship with people. He loves us. So with that in mind, here's our application that's the key. May we have both a relationship and fellowship with God. 
The relationship comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He paid for sin. He rose again. He gives us eternal life. We were lost. We were dead. But by faith in Christ, we have eternal life, and there's great joy. B, fellowship comes by confession. If we move away, if we break fellowship with our Heavenly Father, if we say, I want my stuff, and I'm going to do my own thing, no matter what happens, we can always come back to Him. Sometimes the world looks good, but it ends up, we end up broken and alone. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, and we are restored, and there is great joy. So may we understand God's great love for us, that He wants us to be with Him, and that we can have an eternal relationship with Him by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we sin, we can always be restored to fellowship by confession, because God wants us to be with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these truths. Help us to put it together and know it. Thank you, Lord. You love us with an everlasting love. Even though we're all sinners and come short of your glory, you desire for us to have a relationship with you and fellowship with you, and it's through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you, that we can have eternal life. Through Jesus, we can have fellowship because he is the intercessor. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room, if there's anyone in this room who's never trusted Christ, that right now they can believe in him for eternal life. And by the authority of the Scripture, they are saved and have eternal life forever. Lord, we realize that sometimes we break fellowship. Sometimes we have sin in our lives. Lord, we know that you want us to be with you. And if we break fellowship, if we sin, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. You're like that Father waiting for us to come back. May we confess our sins and be in fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord, for these great truths. May we not only have eternal life, but may we have that fellowship because of Jesus Christ. We know you want us to be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.